It was June of 2014, and Derek Broadus was busy painting one of the rooms of his recently purchased home at 657 Boulevard in Westfield, New Jersey. One of the top 20 wealthiest towns in New Jersey, Westfield enjoyed a reputation as being a safe town for mostly prosperous people. 657 Boulevard was a prestigious address on a wide, tree-lined street, one of the top properties in Westfield. Although painters were scheduled, Derek had wanted to try out some colors in one of the rooms. He wanted to make it right for his wife Maria and their three children, and it was no easy task. It was a huge home with six bedrooms and the fulfillment of a dream for Derek, who, now at age 40, had worked his way up from working-class family beginnings in Maine to becoming a well-paid insurance executive in Manhattan. The home, within commuting distance of New York City, was in a great location with fine schools and all the perks of a quiet suburban life, and that closeness to New York City had cost him $1.3 million. Maria had grown up in Westfield, and she and the kids were busy packing at their current home, full of eagerness to move into this dream home. Derek was spending his nights readying the house for contractors, and choosing paint colors was top on his list. Within a week, his family would be moving in, and things would be noisy, busy, and happy. But now, it was quiet and empty. Needing a break from the mundane chore of painting, Derek walked out to the mailbox, not expecting much, because they weren't even in the house yet. There were a few occupant cards and marketing offers in the box, along with a sealed letter addressed to New Neighbor. David carried the mail inside, and standing near the kitchen countertop, opened the New Neighbor letter. It started innocently enough. Dearest New Neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. But as Derek kept reading the letter from his new neighbor, it took a turn. How did you end up here? The writer asked. Did 657 Boulevard call to you with its force within? The letter went on. 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It is now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. The letter identified the Broadus's Honda minivan, as well as the workers renovating the home. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be, the person wrote. Tisk tisk tisk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. David felt a cold chill run up his spine as the realization that someone had been watching his family on the occasions when they had visited the home to plan the renovations and the placement of furniture. The cold chill was followed by a rash of emotions, not the least of which were anger, the desire to protect his family, and paranoia. As he read on, he realized this had to be the work of a madman, at the very least an extremely cruel person who got their jollies by trying to terrify innocent people. Earlier in the week, Derek and Maria had gone to the house and chatted with their new neighbors, while their children, who were five, eight, and ten years old, ran around the backyard with several kids from the neighborhood. The letter writer seemed to have noticed. 
You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think there are three that I have counted. The anonymous correspondent wrote, before asking if there were any more on the way. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. The envelope had no return address. Who am I? The person wrote. There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look out any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. The letter concluded with a suggestion that this message would not be the last. Welcome, my friends, welcome. Let the party begin. Followed by a signature typed in a cursive font and signed, The Watcher. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and the story you're about to hear is true. It is a real whodunit mystery, as the Watcher here was never identified, and accusations are still flying with regard to the identity and motives of this very twisted letter writer. It's hard to fathom the anger and terror that was caused here and it totally upended the Broadus' family life, causing them all kinds of mental angst, and soon financial worries when word got out about the threats, and their property value dropped, finally ending only recently, July 1st, 2019, when they sold their home for a $350,000 loss. And now, our story continues. It was after 10 p.m., and Derek Broadus was alone. He raced round the house, turning off lights so no one could see inside, then called the Westfield Police Department. An officer came to the house, read the letter, and said, in typical New Jersey style, What the F is this? He asked Derek a few routine questions, including the customary, Do you have any enemies? To which Derek answered, No. And then he recommended moving a piece of construction equipment from the back porch in case the watcher tried to toss it through a window. Comforting. Derek left the house and drove back to his wife and kids who were living at their old home at another location in Westfield. He shared the contents of that letter with Maria. That night, Derek and Maria wrote an email to John and Andrea Woods, the couple who had sold them 657 Boulevard, to ask if they had any idea who the watcher might be or why he or she had written, quote, I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. Andrea replied the following morning. She said that in the entire 23 years that they had lived in the house, they had never received any letters until a few days before the transference of ownership to the Broadduses. The letter they received followed a similar vein to the note Derek received, similar in that it was strange, but their letter, according to them, wasn't threatening. 
Derek and Maria had been thinking a lot about what they would have done had the Woods told them about their letter from the Watcher. The Woodses, both retired scientists, told the Broadduses that they remembered the letter they received was strange, but it thanked them for taking care of the house. They said they never had any issues. We certainly never felt watched, Andrea told them. They rarely even locked the doors. Or so they said. When the Woods's letter was delivered, the Woods simply considered it a prank and threw it away. It seems at this point that the Watcher was trying to sour the deal, which would accomplish keeping the Woods family at this location longer. Then you wonder, maybe the Woods had been receiving threatening letters all along, and that's what motivated them to put the house on the market. But if this were so, why admit to getting even one? Why not just stay quiet? As soon as they admitted they had received a similar letter, they were going to be pulled into the investigation. And apparently the police had similar thoughts. Arrangements were quickly made for both current and previous owners of the house to head to the local police department in person. Maria represented the Broadus's interests. They met with Detective Leonard Lugo, who advised them to keep the letters a closely guarded secret. Maria, in particular, needed to avoid mentioning anything to her new neighbors. In light of the new investigation, they were all suspects. For the next week or two, the Broadus family maintained a status of high alert. Strict vigilance was kept at all times. Derek had a work-related trip that had to be canceled, and Maria kept a tight rein on all her children. They were now living at her mother's house in Westfield, having sold their old house and spending hours visiting the new property while workers continued the renovations. Whenever they ventured into a far corner of the garden or came close to disappearing from her view, she would call out their names in a scolding manner. All of these precautions were necessary, but the new owners did not want to appear unsociable to their new neighbors. Derek invited some of them to inspect the work he had been doing on the house. During one visit by a neighbor couple, the wife commented that having new Young blood in the neighborhood would be welcome. That choice of words really woke up Derek. While that may have very well been a coincidence, it did very little to ease his nerves. Meanwhile, construction on the house was still ongoing. When a contractor arrived one morning, he discovered that someone had ripped out a sign he had erected the night before. Perhaps because of their extra precautions, nothing happened over the next two weeks. That all changed when Maria dropped into the house in order to check on paint samples. She also checked the mail and noticed a familiar envelope. The watcher had kept his or her word and wrote once more. This time, he or she addressed the couple by name. However, the spelling of the name was incorrect. Perhaps that was an honest mistake by someone that could have been close enough to eavesdrop on their identity, but far enough to mishear. Or perhaps the Watcher knew full well what their names were, but wanted to throw off investigators. Maybe the mysterious writer had even infiltrated the grounds while posing as a contract worker. The note mentioned the workers, personal belongings, and even complimented them on the dumpster. The author knew the ages and nicknames of all three children. The letter posed a strange and disturbing question, whether the child who had the easel inside the porch was the artist of the family. Once more, the writer inquired whether or not they had found what was inside the walls. It also confirmed that, if they had not, 
they soon would. But the watcher had a lot more to say. These are the contents of the second letter from the watcher. 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It has been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It is far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It will help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher and have been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession, and now you are too, broadest family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. There are lots of clues to look for in the second letter. For instance, in addition to the fact that the sender is trying to terrorize the family by calling them by name and saying they are being watched and calling the children young blood, the watcher admits his or her obsession with the house and says that he or she was the catalyst for the woods selling this house. Why say this? And if it was true, why didn't the woods admit to the coercion? Because they wanted the sale? The watcher is also apparently fixated on the profits generated through the sale of the house, mentioning that it was greed that brought the last three families to the house. To me, that indicates the words of a very unstable and antisocial person, maybe a young idealist with a glowing hatred and envy for successful people. Someone who feels that they can correct all the unfairness of society by bringing down a wealthy family to their level and maybe get a thrill by knowing that they alone were responsible for all the terror and pain they were causing. Maybe someone into dark video games in the basement of his or her parents' home, or better yet, a third floor where they could keep watch. Soon anger was giving in to paranoia, and paranoia was setting in for Derek and Maria. They were invited to a barbecue at a house across the street from their property. By this time, another house on the block had been sold, and those new owners also made an appearance. The broadest family could only focus on their own problems. Both Derek and Maria were conscious that they were actually scanning the attendees, likely to the point of staring. Derek started chatting with John Schmidt, a neighbor two doors down from 657. One house between them was owned by another family. Peggy Langford owned the house next to 657. She was over 90 years old, but shared the home with several of her children. Each of these children was at least 60 years of age. Schmidt revealed that the family was eccentric, but he didn't think they posed a threat. 
One of the youngest of the children, Michael, was unemployed and wore a thick beard. The Langfords had occupied their home since the mid-sixties. This new information about the Langfords made Derek highly suspicious of them. That may well have been the writer's intention. Thus, Derek decided to share this latest development with Detective Lugo. Lugo was well aware of the Langfords' reputation and had already brought Michael in for questioning about a week after the first of the letters had arrived. While Michael denied all knowledge of the letters, something about his diction didn't entirely convince Lugo. Unfortunately, not much else could be done with little more than one detective's hunch. They needed a confession if they were going to pursue the investigation. Andrea Woods suggested another theory. Since the letters often mentioned the contractors and the names of the children, then the watcher might indeed be an immediate neighbor. The very nature of the prose did suggest that the writer had knowledge of the local area. Each letter was delivered via the U.S. Postal Service Distribution Center in Kearney. The first letter was postmarked June 4th, which was actually before the house publicly went on the market. At no time did the Woods use a standard for sale sign. The first contractors arrived on the property a day before the first of the letters was sent, but no one close to the house had any idea that work had begun. Even the jackhammer used in the basement went unnoticed. Detective Lugo was also shown the house as part of the investigation into the matter. He did find the easel that the letter had mentioned, however, and it wasn't easy to see from the street. The back or side of the house had the best view of it. Therefore, it appeared the watcher had that vantage point. When the Broadduses told Lugo about the family, he said he already knew. Derek and his wife had become frustrated. Derek told one interviewer, This is someone who threatened my kids, and the police are saying, Probably nothing's going to happen. Probably isn't good enough for me. After the second letter, Derek told the cops that if they didn't take care of the situation, they would have a different kind of case on their hands. This person attacked my family, and where I'm from, when you do that, you get your ass beat. Frustrated, the Broadduses began their own investigation. Derek became especially obsessed. He set up webcams in 657 Boulevard and spent nights crouched in the dark, watching to see if anyone was watching the house at close range. Maria thought I was crazy, he told one interviewer recently at a coffee shop in Manhattan, where he covered a table with documents relating to the case, including copies of the letters, which he and his wife had shared with only a few friends and family members. The Langfords were the only ones there since the 60s, with overlays marking possible sight lines for the easel and a church, and a circle for approximate range of earshot to estimate who might have heard Maria yelling their kids' names. Only a few homes fit both criteria. The Broadduses also turned to several experts. They employed a private investigator who staked out the neighborhood and ran background checks on the Langfords, but didn't find anything noteworthy. Derek reached out to a former FBI agent who served as the inspiration for Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. They were on a high school board of trustees together. They also hired Robert Lenahan, another former FBI agent, to conduct a threat assessment. Lenahan recognized several old-fashioned ticks in the letters that pointed to an older writer. The envelope was addressed to M. M. Braddis, 
Bradus spelled B-R-A-D-D-U-S. The salutations included the day's weather, warm and humid, sunny and cool for a summer day, and the sentences had double spaces between them. The letters had a certain literary panache which suggested a voracious reader, at least to the FBI investigator, and a surprising lack of profanity given the level of anger, which Lenahan thought meant a less macho writer. Maybe, he wondered, the Watcher had seen the movie by the same name, The Watcher, starring Keanu Reeves as a serial killer who stalks the detective trying to catch him. Lenahan didn't think The Watcher was likely to act on the threats, but the letters had enough typos and errors to imply a certain erraticism. The first letter was dated Tuesday, June 4th, but that day was a Wednesday. There was also a seething anger directed at the wealthy in particular. The watcher was upset by new money moving into town. Are you one of those Hoboken transplants who are ruining Westfield? And by the Broadus's relatively modest renovations. One part of the letter read, The house is crying from all of the pain it is going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 60s were a good time for 657 Boulevard when I ran from room to room imagining the life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old, and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died, and now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Lenahan recommended looking into former housekeepers or their descendants. Perhaps the watcher was jealous that the Broadduses had bought a home that the writer couldn't afford. But the focus remained on the Langfords. In cooperation with Westfield Police, the Broadduses sent a letter to the Langfords announcing plans to tear down the house, hoping to prompt a response. But nothing happened. Detective Lugo brought Michael Langford in for a second interview, but got nowhere and his sister, Abby, accused the police of harassing their family. Eventually, the Broadduses hired Lee Levitt, a lawyer, who met with several members of the Langford family, as well as their attorney, to show them the letters, along with photos explaining how their house was one of the few vantage points from which the easel could be seen. The meeting grew tense, Levitt told one article writer, and the Langfords insisted Michael was innocent. One night, Derek had a dream in which he confronted Peggy, the eldest Langford, and demanded she build an eight-foot fence between the properties. Maria was having other kinds of dreams. One night, she woke up to an especially vivid one about a man who lived nearby. He was wearing these boots and carrying a pitchfork and calling to the kids, and I couldn't get to them in time, Maria said. She thought almost anyone could be the watcher, which made daily life feel like navigating a labyrinth of threats. She probed the faces of shoppers at Trader Joe's to see if they looked strangely at her kids, and spent hours googling anyone who seemed suspicious. Paranoia was taking control of both of their lives. There were reasons to consider other suspects. For one thing, the police spoke to Michael before the second letter was sent, which would make sending two more especially reckless. The Broadduses say that Lugo told them they wouldn't receive any more letters after he spoke to Michael. Then there was the rest of the neighborhood to consider. The private investigator found two child sex offenders within a few blocks. Bill Woodward, the Broadus's house painter, 
had also noticed something strange. The couple behind 657 Boulevard kept a pair of lawn chairs strangely close to the Broaddus's property. One day, I was looking out the window and saw this older guy sitting in one of the chairs. He wasn't facing his house. He was facing the Broaddus's. Of course, with nothing else to do, the old guy might just have been watching what had by then become the source of all the neighborhood chatter. By the end of 2014, the investigation had stalled. The watcher had left no digital trail, no fingerprints, and no way to place someone at the scene of a crime that could have been hatched from pretty much any mailbox in northern New Jersey. The letters could be read closely for possible clues or dismissed as the nonsensical ramblings of a sociopath. It was like trying to find a needle in a haystack, said Scott Krause, who helped investigate the case for the Union County Prosecutor's Office. In December, the Westfield police told the Broadduses they had run out of options. Derek showed the letters to his priest, who agreed to bless the house. The renovations to 657 Boulevard, including a new alarm system, were finished within a few months. But the idea of moving in filled the Broadduses with overwhelming anxiety. Could they let their kids play outside or have friends over? Would they get a new letter every week? Derek priced out trained German shepherds and posted a job on a website for military veterans. All you have to do is work out in the backyard every day. But the Broadduses hadn't bought 657 to feel bunkered in a fortress. At the end of the day, it came down to, What are you willing to risk? Maria told Derek, We weren't going to put our kids in harm's way. Derek had been responding to occasional alarms at the house, sometimes in the middle of the night, bringing a knife with him just in case. They were so joyous about their new home. And then, within days, they were petrified. The painter, Bill Woodward, said, I'm a stranger, and Maria was crying and shaking in my arms. It didn't help that the watcher seemed to be getting more and more unhinged. After the second letter, the parents both decided to stop bringing their children to the house. It also made them have second thoughts about the house as an investment. If this was an attempt to frighten them off, it was working. Several weeks after the second letter was dispatched, a third one arrived. This one wanted to know what had happened and indicated that the house was missing them. 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It is coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend, and now it is my enemy. I am in charge of 657 Boulevard. It is not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. It will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood back to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it. And let it alone. Were these clues or red herrings? Admitting they once played there? As in maybe lived there? Or maybe played there as friends of the children who lived there? Just BS meant to confuse investigators, probably. But you, the listener, might have a different opinion. The house was built back in 1905 
and many folks consider it the grandest home on the whole block. The Woods bought it in 1990, and when they placed it on the market in 2014, they received multiple competing offers that exceeded their asking price. The Broadus family now considered that one of the losing house hunters might have held a grudge against them for winning the bidding war. Andrea Woods revealed in another email that one possible buyer had a medical condition that prevented the purchase. Another had found a home elsewhere. Now that so many possible clues as to the identity of the watcher were being counted out, Derek and Maria began their own investigation. Money was tight, as they still had to pay the new mortgage and all the expenditures associated with it. The family heeded the original advice and told hardly anyone about the letters. Even their close friends were in the dark. People began to question why the family had not moved into their new home when the opportunity arose. The Broadduses told them that legal issues prevented them from moving in just yet. However, their friends wondered about serious marital problems and a possible divorce. On a personal note, the situation was taking its toll on Derek. He openly admitted that he couldn't sleep at night and that his doctor prescribed medication for him. Maria began seeing a therapist who diagnosed her with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. The best cure for this was to sell the house. Six months after receiving the very first letter, the Broadduses decided that they'd had enough. When they first put the house back on the market, they set a higher price than they had paid, owing to the additions that they had made. But all of the media coverage and local gossip had made the house undesirable. Rumors that had been running rampant dissuaded at least one prospective buyer who admitted that he loved the house. Meanwhile, countless theories emerged regarding the possible identity of the perpetrator. The watcher could have been a sexual predator, stalker, and probably everything in between. To help expedite matters, the sellers drafted a letter of partial disclosure to their realtor pertaining to the letters that had been received up to that point. Others within the industry believed that the owners had become too forthcoming. This tactic did not work, though. Interested parties made several bids, but all of them fell below the Broadus' valuation or even the market price. Even when they lowered the price, nothing came of it. It seemed as though the watcher had some effect after all. Perhaps more than anyone had anticipated. This got Derek and Maria thinking what they would have done if they knew then what they learned afterward. Disclosure law does state that serious offenses committed within any home, such as murder, must be mentioned during any potential sale. Perhaps they thought that this situation could also qualify. Neither of the Woods ever felt as though they were under any scrutiny and often left doors unlocked at 657 Boulevard. One year after originally buying the house, Derek and Maria filed a legal suit against the Woods. They insisted that the law required full disclosure of the letter the Woods had received just prior to closing. When a local reporter got wind of the events, the entire sequence of events went viral. News vans became a regular feature of the street, and one lone reporter went as far as bringing a personal lawn chair to monitor things. Hundreds of requests flooded in from the media, but a consultant advised Derek not to speak about their experience publicly. The explosion of limelight made the family uneasy, and they departed Westfield altogether. It was then that they decided they would tell their kids everything that had happened. Naturally, the children had many questions that neither parent could answer. 
In his first public forum after the letters had become public knowledge, Mayor Andy Skibitsky had to field some of the backlashes from concerned citizens. He stressed that even though the case was unsolved, nobody had heard from The Watcher in about a year. Skibitsky claimed that police conducted a thorough investigation. However, they never contacted most of the neighbors living in the neighborhood. One of the glaring discoveries that he came across was a DNA test of one of the envelopes the watcher used. Results indicated that the DNA presence was feminine. This drew his attention to Abby Langford. As a real estate agent, perhaps she felt some jealousy about the hefty commission from the sale of the house next door. Chambliss managed to persuade a security guard to retrieve a water bottle that she discarded in order to obtain some of her DNA. However, the test proved that the DNA on the envelope did not belong to Abby Langford. Shortly after this, the prosecutor's office updated Derek and Maria Broadus and confirmed to them that they had removed the Langfords as suspects. Broadus's had sold their old home, so they moved in with Maria's parents while continuing to pay the mortgage and property taxes. I had to do things like shovel the driveway, Derek said. Just picture that little indignity. I'd go at five in the morning, then come back and do it again at my in-laws. They told only a handful of friends about the letters, which left others to ask why they weren't moving in. Legal issues, they said. They fought constantly and started taking medications to fall asleep. From a safer distance, the Watcher was a real-life mystery to solve. A commenter on NJ.com suggested a ground-penetrating radar to find whatever the Watcher claimed was in the walls. The home inspector had already looked and told Derek the only issue was the aging home's lack of insulation. The range of proposed suspects included a jilted mistress, a spurned realtor, a local high schooler's creative writing project, guerrilla marketing for a horror movie, and mall goths having fun. Some people just thought the Broadduses were wimps for not moving in. I would never let this sicko stop me from moving into a house, never back down from a terrorist, which, when seen, irked the Broadduses. None of them have read the letters or had their children threatened by someone they didn't know, Derek said. To decide whether this person is only nuts enough to write these letters and not do something? What if something did happen? At the first Westfield Town Council meeting after the letters became public, Mayor Andy Skibitsky assured the public that the watcher hadn't been heard from in a year and that even though the police hadn't solved the case, their investigation had been exhaustive. This was news to 657's neighbors, most of whom had never heard from the cops. We are confounded as to how a thorough investigation can be conducted without talking to all the neighbors within proximity to the home. Several of them wrote in a letter to the local paper. Baron Shambliss, a veteran detective in the Westfield Police, was asked to look at the case. The Broadduses are victims, and I don't think they got the support they needed. Shambliss, who is now retired, told one writer recently of the initial investigation. Shambliss knew his colleagues had looked closely at Michael Langford. According to his brother Sandy Langford, Michael had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young man. He sometimes spooked newcomers to the neighborhood when he did strange things, like walk through their backyard or peek into the windows of homes that were being renovated. But those who knew him told Shambliss that the odd things he did were mostly just unusual neighborly kindnesses. He goes out and gets the newspapers for me every morning, said John Schmidt, who lives next door. 
People who had known Michael for decades told me they didn't think he was capable of writing the letters. Left without a suspect, the Broadduses reopened their personal investigation. They were still coy about sharing too much with their neighbors who remained in the pool of suspects, but spent an afternoon walking the block with a picture of the watcher's handwritten envelope. They hoped someone might recognize the writing from a Christmas card, but the only notable encounter came when an older man who lived behind 657 said his son joked that the watcher sounded a little bit like him. A neighbor across the street was the CEO of Kroll, the security firm, and the Broadduses hired the company to look for handwriting matches, but they found nothing. They also hired Robert Leonard, a renowned forensic linguist and former member of the band Shanana, who didn't find any noteworthy overlap when he scoured local online forums for similarities to the Watcher's writing, although he did think the author might watch Game of Thrones. At one point, Derek persuaded a friend in tech to connect him to a hacker, willing to try breaking into Wi-Fi networks in the neighborhood to look for incriminating documents, but doing so turned out to be both illegal and more difficult than the movies made it seem, so they didn't go through with it. Westfield police opted to restart the investigation from scratch. They asked Andrea Woods if she would provide a DNA sample, and they questioned her 21-year-old son. There was a breakthrough that either everyone had missed or simply overlooked. The watcher had targeted another house. A family living on the boulevard for quite some time had also received a mysterious letter at about the time the Broadduses got their first contact. Like the Woods, they threw the letter away, thinking it was just a prank, but one of the grown children of the household mentioned it in a post on Facebook. This family confirmed to police officers that the letter they got was very similar to the one Derek Broaddus received. Buoyed by this revelation, Chambliss and a partner decided to stake out the street one evening. At about 11 p.m., a car parked close to their van and remained there long enough to arouse both officers' suspicions. The police traced the vehicle to a young woman that lived in a nearby town. Her boyfriend, who had a keen interest in dark video games, lived on the same block as 657. Chambliss recalled that one of the games involved a character named The Watcher. Twice he invited the boyfriend to the station for an interview, and both times he didn't show up. As all Chambliss had in the way of evidence was hearsay and intuition, Chambliss couldn't force the man to show up. The media frenzy that once became the very talk of the town had long since peaked. With no new leads, the police decided to close the investigation once and for all. Chambliss, not long after, retired from the force. The Broadduses attempted to sell 657 Boulevard starting February of 2015, but they were unsuccessful. They made a proposal to the planning board to grant them rights to subdivide the property. They thought that if they couldn't sell it to a single-family buyer, perhaps a developer could tear down the house and build two houses and sell those on two separate lots instead. In early 2017, the board denied their request. As a result, the Broadduses found renters willing to live in the house despite the letters. This only offset the mortgage, but did not cover it wholly. Two weeks after the renters moved in, they received another letter. This one was even more threatening than the others. However, the correspondence specifically addressed Derek and Maria, although it did mention the renters. This was the fourth letter. You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me. 
one of the so-called neighbors who has no idea who the watcher could be. Or maybe you do know, and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. 657 Boulevard survived your attempt at assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the Boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. The Watcher also alluded to revenge in some form. Maybe a car accident. Maybe a fire. Maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you feel sick day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. While the Broadduses continued to be consumed by stress and fear, for the rest of Westfield, the story became little more than a creepy urban legend. A house to walk by on Halloween if you were brave enough. No one who had lived in the house before the Woodses could recall anything unusual, and it was hard for people to imagine that their idyllic neighborhood could be host to something so sinister. The theory, so far as it went, was that the Broadduses had suffered buyer's remorse or realized they couldn't afford the home and concocted an elaborate scheme to get out of the sale. Or Derek was cooking up some kind of insurance fraud. Or they were angling for a movie deal. The Broadduses, by the way, received several offers, but turned them down. Lifetime eventually released a movie called The Watcher, despite a cease-and-desist letter from the Broadduses, arguing that the couple in its movie was biracial and the letters were signed, The Raven. A few weeks after the letters became public, the Westfield Leader published an article in which anonymous neighbors were quoted asking why the Broadduses kept renovating a home they weren't moving into, or questioning whether they had really done that much renovating at all. The Leader even cast doubt on Maria's commitment to her family's safety, citing as evidence the fact that she had had a public Facebook page with a photo of her kids. The paper did note that the police had tested Maria's DNA, and it didn't match. None of those theories made much logical sense. The Broadduses had answers to every question. How does someone go from a $300,000 house to a $1.3 million house in 10 years? This is America. But they weren't speaking publicly, and the rumors persisted. One Boulevard resident wrote a letter to the editor arguing that an elaborate scheme is underway to defraud the Woods family for millions of dollars. There were even more skeptics online. I live in a neighboring town. If these letters had been happening for a while, there's no doubt in my mind that it would have been made public way before this, Lord Fluffernutter said on Reddit. This screams scam. The Broadduses hadn't known how their neighbors would react to news about the Watcher, but they had lived in the area for a decade, and Maria's family had been a part of the community for much longer. So it was shocking to find themselves accused of being con artists. To Derek, it seemed that some in Westfield preferred the conspiracy theory to considering whether their town might be home to a menace. There's a natural tendency to say, I've lived here for 35 years. Nothing's happened to me, Derek said. What happened to my family is an affront to their contention that they're safe, that there's no such thing as mental illness in their community. People don't want to believe this could happen in Westfield. 
As it turns out, the primary concern that the city council heard from residents was that they were worried about their property values and the stigma that that situation created in the neighborhood. The Broadduses were suddenly outcasts not only from their home, but also their town. Derek wanted to leave Westfield, but Marie insisted on not uprooting her kids. This person took so much from us, Maria told this writer. I wouldn't let them take more. Two years after the Watcher's letters arrived, the Broadduses borrowed money from family members to buy a second home in Westfield, using an LLC to keep the location private. But staying in town was stressful. The first time Maria let her daughter go to the pool with friends, she stared at the tracker on her daughter's iPhone the whole time. One of the kids was in language arts class when the teacher led a debate about whether the family in a book they were reading should move to Westfield. The class thought they should, in part because of how safe it was. Afterward, one of the kids told the Broadus' child, My parents told me that no matter what your family says, Westfield is safe. In the spring of 2016, the Broadduses put 657 back on the market, hoping it might garner more interest given how many people had reacted to the letters by saying they would have ignored them and just moved in. The Broadduses held a well-attended open house after which Derek and Maria spent hours researching every person who signed in and comparing their handwriting to the watchers. But each time a potential buyer expressed interest and met with the Broadduses' lawyer to read the letters, they backed out. Some cocky guy from Staten Island said, Screw this, I'm going to get a house at a discount, Derek recalled. He reads the letters, and we never hear from him again. Finally, the Broadduses decided to rent. A family with grown children and two big dogs had agreed to rent 657 Boulevard. The renter told the Star Ledger he wasn't worried about the watcher, though he had a clause in the lease that let him out in case of another letter. Two weeks later, Derek went to 657 to deal with squirrels that had taken up residence in the roof. The renter handed him an envelope that had just arrived. It read, Violent winds and bitter cold to the vile and spiteful Derek and his wench of a wife, Maria. This letter, two and a half years after the watcher appeared, came out of nowhere. It was dated February 13th, the day the Broadduses gave depositions in their lawsuit against the Woods family. That was the one that began with, You wonder who the watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Derek took the letter to police headquarters, where a detective looked at a neighborhood map and traced a circle around the house 300 yards in diameter, suggesting the watcher must be somewhere in there. The Broadduses continued to press the case that there still wasn't much for law enforcement to go on, and it was possible to look up and down the street and see the watcher in practically anyone. In closing, last month, according to an online article posted by New York Magazine, which was one of the sources for the story, the Westfield Watcher passed the Jersey Devil as New Jersey's top urban legend, according to the website Thrillist. How this even qualifies as an urban legend, we're not sure. According to the site, the Westfield Watcher joins the ranks of New Mexico's Chupacabra, Maryland's Goatman, the Phantom Jogger of Canyon Hill in Idaho, and of course, the infamous Florida Skunk Ape. Thrillist included in their rationale why each entry was creepy and where it came from. In the case of the Westfield Watcher, Thrillist said that it surpassed the Jersey Devil because there is doubt of the Devil's existence. Who was the Watcher? I don't believe the Broadduses could have cooked up a scheme like this to get a book deal, because both David and Maria suffered heavily from the toll that this whole affair placed upon them. 
Remember that she was diagnosed with PTSD. He was canceling trips at work and under a tremendous amount of stress himself. And this took years to work itself out. I believe it was definitely someone who knew the neighborhood and got close enough to hear Maria Broadus call her kids' names. This person sent threatening letters to the other new neighbors as well. So it wasn't just this house that was the watcher's source of concern, although the contents of the letters would have one believe that. The watcher seemed to focus on new arrivals, attempting to scare them away using vague threats, or sometimes direct threats. There may have been some deep-seated fear that newcomers would somehow have an effect upon the watcher's life. No wonder the 62-year-old Langford, unemployed, still living in his mother's house, and close by, was a suspect. But it could have been the boyfriend of the girl that the detective had spotted in the van on the street that night. He had once lived in that neighborhood, the detective said, but he moved just blocks away. In one of the letters, he said his father had died, that his father had kept watch on the house before him. Maybe his father had fallen upon hard times and had to move to a less affluent part of the town. Maybe he had been sued by a wealthy newcomer to town. Maybe the stress of that shortened his life. That would account for the hatred of newcomers and especially wealthy newcomers. Or maybe his father had been in need of money and sold his house on Boulevard to a wealthy newcomer, changing this young man's life in a not-so-happy way. Who knows? Some of you may remember the Amityville horror story and subsequent movie of the same name. That one turned out to be a hoax inspired by the husband and wife who cooked up a wild tale of paranormal occurrences and terror that their young family supposedly experienced in their Long Island home. We're not saying that this story was invented, and no motive was ever found that would connect the Broadduses. There have also been a number of similar true crime stories, such as the Circleville Letter, that began with a terrorizing letter and ended with attempted murder and the imprisonment of an accused man. That is an interesting whodunit, and we will get to that someday. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. If you enjoyed this episode or any of the hundreds of episodes in our archives, please send us a review at Apple Podcast or castbox.fm or stitcher.com and let us know. Thanks. And help a friend subscribe to our shows. 1001 Heroes, 1001 Classic Short Stories, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. Check out the links we've posted in the show notes. Many of our listeners enjoy all four of our shows. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.